Why would you trust Jesus? Why should you trust Jesus? Why should we trust Jesus? In a disbelieving world and in John's account of the world, the world is dark and people don't welcome Jesus. Why would you trust Jesus? Why not trust in yourself or throw in your lot with military might or wealth or self-generated ambition? Why not go it alone and take your best shot? That question continues to be on the lips of people in our secular 21st century society all around us, particularly when we consider the suffering in the world. Consider those suffering tonight through the devastating floods up and down the East Coast or those seeing lives, properties, hopes and dreams disappear under the bombing, the fighting and the atrocities in the Ukraine. Or perhaps we know of people who have suffered inexplicable, unexpected personal tragedy lately, perhaps endemic pain or a grim diagnosis or a broken relationship. Why trust Jesus? What difference does it make? John 4, 43 through to 54 is a lovely passage about coming to faith. But it's got some kick in it as well, some sting in the tail. So let's tell the story that we read there. Jesus had experienced a really warm welcome from Samaritans, a people considered second-rate, despised by many in Judea and Galilee, but he'd been with them now for more than two days and Samaritans had affirmed, this is the saviour of the world. He had been warmly welcomed in Samaria, but now he's on his way back up to Galilee. This is his place, his people, to Cana. And he knows the saying, a prophet has no honour in his own country. He knows that throughout the history of Scripture, frequently we read of God's spokespersons, God's prophets, being opposed and condemned and persecuted, and particularly in their own hometowns. And one of those is Jeremiah from Anathoth, and the village of Anathoth tried to kill him. They didn't receive him as a prophet. He'd grown up there, they'd known him, they couldn't come at the fact that he was somehow anointed and special. Jesus is not sure whether he'll find a welcome back up in Galilee. Will he find a welcome? Well, the passage actually tells us, yes, Galileans welcomed him, but it also tells us that they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, they had seen signs, they had seen powerful works, they had seen miracles. And the question that John is throwing at his readers tonight is, if you welcome Jesus, why? What's the basis of your welcome? Why will you trust him? Why will you welcome him? Why will you receive him? Is it only because he works powerful miracles? Is it only because he is a healer or a miracle worker? 
So John tells the story of a royal official, a nobleman. He's most likely part of the household of Herod Antipas himself, the Tetrarch of Galilee. And here is the story. Jesus is in Cana, and perhaps about 35 kilometres away, a good distance, in Capernaum, a desperate family is feeling helpless because their son, burning up with fever, is dying. Someone tells them that Jesus is in Cana. That's not too far, they think. He's powerful. He works miracles. Let's go to him. Let's see if he's powerful. This might be the last chance our son has. So the father hurries to Cana. It takes hours. He's desperate and anxious. But finally, he meets Jesus. He's face to face with Jesus. And he says to him, Please come down before my child dies and heal him. Please come down. Jesus' response is something of an admonishment. Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. The wealthy man has not come to Jesus because he wants to be a disciple. He's not come to Jesus because he wants to learn. He's come because he's desperate. He needs a miracle. When Jesus says, you people will never believe unless you see signs and wonders, he's talking about the Jewish people, Israel, his people. You people will never believe unless you see signs and wonders. Why? Well, imagine the father's heart dropped when Jesus said that. And he doesn't argue, he simply repeats, Sir, please, please come down before my child dies. And then Jesus, as he always does, surprises the father and the reader. He doesn't go down, he just says, go, your son will live. And now the father has a choice to make. Will he believe the word of Jesus and go home? Or will he argue and debate and persuade Jesus to come down, lay on hands, perform a miracle? But the key to the passage in verse 50 reads literally, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke. The man believed the word. John's all about faith. He's all about trust. He's all about receiving Jesus' word, believing Jesus' trustworthiness. And in 50, it says, the man believed the word. Now, the NIV, I think, unhelpfully translated something like the, the man took Jesus at his word. 
The word believe is there. The word was believed. The man believed Jesus. He went on home without Jesus, trusting in the word of Jesus. And the desperate father made the long journey home. He could have lingered. He could have tried to persuade. He could have begged more, Jesus, please come with me. Come to Capernaum. But no, he chose to believe the word and he went on his way. It must have been a tense journey home. 35 k's or so. He's on his way when servants are coming to meet him. So excited. They've come out to meet him and they've got good news. They say, yesterday at one o'clock in the afternoon, the seventh hour in the text, everything changed, the fever left, your son is well, he lives, he's bright, he's happy. And the rich man knows that that was the time when Jesus had said in Cana, go, your son will live. At that hour, that's the hour that Jesus had spoken. The fever was gone. This royal official had believed the word of Jesus. He had not seen a sign or a wonder when he trusted that Jesus speaks the truth. He trusted the word of Jesus. I can imagine he now excitedly tells the household what had happened in Cana at one o'clock that previous day when Jesus had said, go, your son will live. He tells his wife, he tells his servants, he tells his healthy son. That's the time Jesus said you would be okay. And the whole household believes in Jesus because Jesus speaks the truth. And John tells us that this is the second sign that Jesus had worked in Cana of Galilee the first one was turning water into wine at a wedding. And now the second one is actually in Capernaum. A young boy who is dying of sickness lives. This is the only time when John ties two signs together. He doesn't say, and the third sign, and the fourth sign, and the fifth sign. He doesn't pair them or anything of that sort from now on. He just pulls those two together, the first and the second he says, these are the two signs at the start of the ministry of Jesus. And there's something about those two signs that I think is quite wonderful. And the reason why Jesus pairs them is because neither sign was known by the wider public. The people who knew Jesus had turned water into wine were just a handful. Some servants, his mother, his disciples... But generally speaking, everybody just got great wine. There was no showmanship. And this time, again, he has said, go, your son will live. And very few people know that when the fever left was the time Jesus spoke. Jesus is not a showman. He doesn't want a reputation as a miracle-working, power-working, healing guru. When he does wonderful things, he does them quietly. He almost does them anonymously. Never on a stage. Even the resurrection, 
occurs in a garden when there is nobody present and some women come and see him there. They're both life-giving signs. They're both kind, generous signs. But they're not spectacular in any public sense. And I love this about Jesus because I think the main truth from the passage in John tonight is this. Jesus is unwilling for signs and wonders to become the grounds for faith. He is not willing to draw people to himself by showing off his power. He just wants people to know that he's trustworthy. He wants faith in his integrity, in his uniqueness. The signs always point to the Lord, the Saviour, Jesus. In John, the one and only who is full of grace and truth. That's what signs do. If you're driving up to Katoomba and you see a sign that says Katoomba 30Ks, you don't stop and say, we've arrived, it's Katoomba. You say there's a sign and that's the way to Katoomba and we'll keep going and we'll get to our destination. The point of the sign is to get you to your destination. You keep going. You find the reality. And in John, the signs point beyond themselves to Jesus. Eventually to his death and resurrection, to God's love for the world, to the sacrifice and suffering and glory and grace of Jesus. They point to a trustworthy God whose promises are kept, whose ways are at times hard to understand, but who is trustworthy and kind and good. There have been signs and wonders all through Scripture and particularly grouped at times around the Exodus and Moses and around Elijah and Elisha and then in Babylon with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And even in the New Testament, the apostles pray for signs and they perform signs. But the signs always point beyond themselves to Jesus, to God's love, to God's wisdom and to God's faithfulness. The passage from Hebrew 11, that we, Hebrew 11 that we just read is quite remarkable. All of the people in that chapter are people of faith. And we're told that some saw signs and miracles. They, through faith, conquered kingdoms. The mouths of lions were shut. Dead people were risen. Wonders occurred. These were people of faith. And Hebrews 11 partly celebrates that. But also there were people of faith, we're told in the text, who were tortured, flogged, chained and imprisoned. The writer says, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, they were destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them because they believed the, the word of Jesus, but they didn't see any relief through a miracle. They experienced grace to persevere, grace to love. They wandered in deserts and mountains. They lived in caves and in holes in the ground. And they were commended for their faith as well. Sometimes God intervened and suffering was relieved. Sometimes God gave strength and power 
for prayer and perseverance and people were martyred. They are all commended for their faith. They all experienced God's grace and they all trusted God's word. Jesus in scripture is determined that we will not ground our faith in the ease or comfort or otherwise of our lives. There is both a welcoming of and a warning about signs and wonders in Scripture. And so in Corinth, Paul rebukes those who demand signs as the grounds of their faith. He says, Jews demand signs. They want to see proofs. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called Jews and Greeks, the power and the wisdom of God. We will know Christians in the world tonight who are suffering deeply. They may see signs, they may see wonders, they may see miracles, and they may not. But the point in John 4 is that your faith is grounded in the promises and the faithfulness, the goodness and the love and the uniqueness of Jesus, not in what happens. Sometimes we're baffled by what God's up to. Life's hard. We long for a miracle. We long that things might change. I'm sure that God's people in the Ukraine tonight and many others in impoverished and unjust contexts are crying out for relief. And the Lord in his mercy will give them grace and help. But we don't quite know how. So many of us are praying for perhaps one of our children or a close friend experiencing affliction or perhaps something in our own lives that we've been struggling with for years and nothing seems to change. Commentators on the first century church have found that in times of persecution and hardship, those early believers, rather than trying to solve what was going on or demand miracles, gave their attention to forming such strong communities of care that they would care and look after for each other right through the impact of evil and terror and their gaze was on when will Christ return. They put their energy and their prayer into forming communities in which the impact of evil and suffering could be absorbed and resisted and transformed as they waited for God. They didn't demand, they didn't seek to solve, they didn't seek to escape or withdraw or surrender their faith. Rather, they developed a strength of community of care that made it possible to absorb fear and terror, anxiety. They didn't demand anything of God. They humbly asked and waited because they trusted. These powerful communities of care are the challenge for the church today. We've grown so used to our comforts and our ease 
But when things go wrong, we quickly wonder about God's goodness. And Jesus wants us to know that faith in Christ is grounded in faith in his integrity, his trustworthiness. John Swinton, a theologian who's written a wonderful book called Raging with Compassion, notes that the communities of the first century in which terror and fear were absorbed and transformed as they waited for Christ to return, that these communities practised lamenting together, crying, grieving, giving time, sitting in silence, waiting on God, remembering together, that these communities worked on forgiveness together, forgiving enemies, forgiving those who were unjust and terrifying, living with courage and pursuing justice in a forgiving way. These were communities of thoughtfulness, where people were attentive and available and kind and patient. That these were communities of friendship, where no one was excluded, where those who were suffering or struggling were included and participated and missed when they were absent. That these were communities of hospitality, where meals kept being shared and conversation and joy and music were part of the core life of the community. This is what those communities practised. The challenge in John 4 then, and the challenge that this rich man actually met and he found faith on something other than a sign, he trusted the word of Jesus. The question for us tonight is, Will our faith be grounded in God's trustworthiness no matter what? Will our faith be, trust, will be, will be grounded in the integrity of Christ no matter what? And when the really horrible things happen, will we be found with a strength of a community of care, of lament and forgiveness and thoughtfulness and friendship and hospitality, that absorbs and transforms the terror or the evil such that our faith continues. We believe in Christ because Christ is Christ. We believe in God because God is God. We believe in God's word because it's true. We trust God because he is trustworthy. He is entirely trustworthy. In fact, the only person in the universe who is entirely trustworthy is Jesus. You will not lose if you trust Jesus because he's Jesus. And when things happen that are hard to understand, pray and wait. Trust. Persevere. Stay in the community friendship. Hold on to God's promises. So John 4 is a lovely passage and Rowan and its journey bears witness to it very much. Let's pray. Father, may our faith in you, Father, Son and Holy Spirit be grounded in our confidence that what you say is right, that what you do is loving, that what you have promised will be kept. And through all of the difficulties, all of the challenges, and sometimes the inexplicable tragedies and 
changes around the world and here in our own lives, our faith comes under threat. But may we know in our hearts tonight that there is nowhere else to go but the good, kind, loving and trustworthy Jesus. Lord, you are the saviour of the world and we will trust you tonight because of who you are. And we pray in your name. Amen. Back to the news, I was...